And today we're going to talk about how Jesus loves us more than the rules. We're going to be reading from Matthew chapter 5, verse 21. And as you're turning there in the Bible, I love a good murder mystery. I just feel like TV's so hard to watch nowadays. It's just getting just worse and worse and worse. And so to find a good show is harder and harder and harder. But I love a good murder mystery. There was uh, one that we found. It's a little bit older now. You know, we're going to older shows, uh, trying to watch things that we missed to find something that's any good. And we went on Netflix. We find a great one's called Foil's War, and it's about this detective. And the great thing about it, it's slow moving. There's a lot of dialogue. And the great thing about it is they'll introduce like five or six main characters in every episode. And then one of them is the murderer, and you don't know. Have you ever watched a murder mystery where they, you know, it's a half hour long or something, they don't have any time, they're too involved with like, you know, explosions or whatever. And they only introduce like one, and you're like one main character besides the detective. You're like, well, it's got to be that person. You're the only one we've been introduced to in the show so far. And this show's great. And it introduces like five or six of them, and it goes, you know, goes through, and you got to figure out, you know, who was the one who killed the person? You know, who's the murderer? And it's just a great murder mystery show. I love a great murder mystery. That's why I love the game Clue. I don't know if you've ever played the game Clue before, but it's the detective game, and there's different characters, Miss Peacock, Colonel Mustard, Miss Scarlet, all these people, and you have to figure out which one of you killed the guy, and you go to the different rooms of the, the game. You ever played the conservatory in the kitchen? And everything you've played this. I love this game. It's so good. And then you guess, you make guesses as to who you think is the murderer, which one of you. And then if you're right, you win. I was playing with my kids the other day, and for the first time in my life, I guessed it correctly. I can't fold this up. Give me a break. <laughs> I guessed it correctly on the first turn. My first turn, I got into a room, I guessed it, and playing with my kids, they're eight years old and six years old. We've played 10 times, they've never beaten me yet. Eight years old and six years old. <laughs> I've won every time we played. I nailed this one on the first guess. Oh, come on, guys. If you do something like you, you got to hide. I know it has nothing to do with the sermon or the scripture today. I just needed somebody to know. That's amazing. <laughs> nailed it on the first try. I'm good at this game, I'm telling you. But I love a good murder mystery. And today, we've got a murder mystery. The Lord Jesus Christ is going to lead us in a murder mystery because there are some people here today among us who are liable of God's judgment on murder. And who is it? In this room today, we have people who are liable of God's judgment on murder, and the Lord is going to reveal it today in this sermon did you come to church? Did you think church could be this exciting? That the stakes could be this high? Man, this is intense. Don't call the police yet. Don't worry. We'll talk about it all. But seriously, this is amazing stuff. So we're going to start reading in Matthew chapter 5, verse 21. And it says, Jesus says, You've heard that it was said to those of old, You shall not murder. And whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you, Jesus says, and this, Jesus is going to do this all throughout this sermon series, all throughout this passage. He takes something of God's commandments in the Old Testament, and he says, you've heard it said that you should not do this. But I say to you, actually, what's godly is this. You thought you were following God's rules by not committing murder, but actually I tell you that 
God's rules, God's desires for us is actually, it's not down here, it's actually up here. Now, we know Jesus is a God of grace, and God is the same throughout the Old Testament and the New Testament, but people have, critics have noticed that God seems a little more strict in the Old Testament than the newer. That's what they claim. I don't think they're reading the Bible very well. The same God of the Old Testament is the God of the new, and just because God is a God of grace does not mean that he's less interested in the rules of the Old Testament or that he's more strict or harsh in the Old Testament. A lot of people say the God of the Old Testament is... But I mean, look at Jesus. Look at what he does. He takes the God of the Old Testament, which is himself, actually, same God, but he takes the God of the Old Testament and he says, he told you, you thought he was strict? You thought that Old Testament guy was strict? Actually, it's up here. And Jesus does this with all these commands in verse 21, verse 27. You've heard it said, but I say. You've heard it said, but I say. Verse 33, verse 38, verse 43. He does it over and over and over. Jesus revealing that to be godly. It's a lot harder than God had previously revealed through his commandments, even all of those commandments, 613 of them in the Old Testament. And Jesus tells us what it means to actually be godly is harder than we ever imagined. And we're trying, right? We're trying. The, they were trying. The Pharisees were trying. The Jewish people were trying. We're trying here today, trying to follow those commandments, trying to be godly. And what God, Jesus reveals is it's not here. It's actually up here. And I don't know if you've been thinking that you've been doing a great job lately. I've been following the rules. I've been making those commands. What well, Jesus is revealing to us through this passage and through this sermon series is that, you know, through all of that effort, we still have not gotten even close to earning our salvation. Jesus sets the bar impossibly high. And I think that should be the point of every church service. That's what sets Christianity apart. That's what makes it different. Every church service in Christianity, every religious ritual that we do, whether it's baptism or communion, whatever it is, the point of it should be to remind us that as I eat this wafer and I drink this juice, as I get dunked under the water, none of this is really getting me very far. All of my effort to be good, which is important we want to do, it's still not getting me even close to earning my salvation. I need the Lord. I need Jesus. That's what everything should remind us of. I need Jesus. Paul tells us that's what the law, the purpose of the law was to do, is to teach us how much we need Jesus. Here, try to be godly and see how hard it is. That's why we need Jesus. He's the only one who can. And that's what we should be reminded of. Every song we sing, every church attendance we attend, every time we open the word, is that Jesus is the only one who can do this? That's what makes Christianity different than any other religion and any other group. That's the gospel. And Jesus, as we read in this chapter, the key to this chapter, the key to this sermon series is verses 17 through 20. Jesus says, I have not come to abolish the law, but to fulfill it for you. None of it will pass away. None of it's not important. The law, all of these rules, they are what it looks like to be loving. And if we were naturally loving, if we were naturally godly people, we would do all of these and we wouldn't need him to tell us. But not only do we need the 613 commands he gave us in the Old Testament, but that was just the baseline. And Jesus reveals it's actually harder, it's actually 
more. And for naturally godly, we'd be able to follow those, but what the law teaches us is that we're naturally not. And here are a bunch of people who have been trying and thinking they were doing a great job, thinking that they had earned God's favor. God wanted to reveal to them that his favor, once again, is only to us by grace. And to be saved, we need to trust fully in him and not in ourselves. We're not righteous in ourselves. Jesus is righteous. He's the one who came to follow that law, to do it perfectly in our place, which is what we need. And he's the only one who can as we sang this morning. And Jesus has got something that we all think that we've been following. He says, you shall not commit murder, but I say to you, and Jesus is going to amplify it. In the Old Testament, the commandment, Exodus 20, 13, you shall not murder. Exodus 21, 12, whoever strikes a man so that he dies shall be put to death. We love a good murder mystery because this world is complicated and murder's not. Right? People who murder are worthy of, liable of God's judgment. There's no argument. When you watch that show, all the gray and everyday life goes away, and it's black and white. There's a good guy and a bad guy. The murderer is the bad guy. He deserves to die for what he's done. He's taken a life. Get him. Find him and get him. Detective, get him in the gate. Who did it? And here Jesus is revealing We've got a murder mystery here today, and he's going to reveal who did it. It's black and white. Somebody's liable of the judgment of God against murder. And he says, but I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. And whoever says, you fool, will be liable to the hell of fire. And we thought, we're doing a good job of not murdering anybody. Jesus is like, actually, no, no. It's up here. That same anger that a murderer has, which causes him to kill somebody, Jesus is like, you're not fooling me. You've got that in your heart. It's the same thing. The same hatred that murderer has, which causes him to kill somebody, you've got that in your heart. And Jesus just solved the murder mystery. We were one verse in. He didn't even need to get to the dining hall. He didn't even need to get to the conservatory. He found the murderer. And it's you. And he didn't need to get to the conservatory. You didn't need to go to the conservatory. You killed him right where you're sitting. You're worthy of God's judgment on murder. And you didn't need to kill him with a candlestick or revolver or a wrench. You did it with the sin in your heart. And here we think we're good people. And nobody knows. I've kept it all inside. And Jesus is smarter than that. He sees right to the heart. There we got it. Next time I have to bring a game with a conventional, traditional box. Jesus equates our anger and our insults to murder. And anger is not always a bad thing. Now, we know exactly what Jesus is talking about in this passage. He doesn't give us a Bible study because he knows that as we hear it, his Holy Spirit's going to convict us of the type of anger which is a sin. 
But just for fun, let's go through what the Bible says on anger. 2 Kings 17, 18. Therefore, the Lord was very angry with Israel. God is angry. Anger is not evil in and of itself. Our God gets angry, and a God of love would get angry. Because as people hurt each other and destroy things and rebel against him, a loving God, a God of love, gets angry. There's a lot of people who don't like an angry God, and so they go through and they cut out the parts of the Bible that they don't like, and they say, I don't think God did this, and I don't think God did that. And the parts that they really don't like are the ones where God is angry and he takes people's lives. Well, it's not a sin for God to be angry. It's good when he's angry because he's loving. If we take away God's anger, ironically, what we do is we take away his love because it's not loving to see people get hurt and not care. It's not loving to see people fight with each other, destroy each other, deceive each other, go to war with each other, and not get severely ticked off. If somebody hurts my child, I'm going to get angry because I love them. And it's only if I don't love them, it's only if I don't love them that I won't get angry. And so God is a God of love, and that means he's also a God of anger. But God is a righteous judge. We are not. God is perfect. He is not. And so only God can handle that type of anger. Only our world can handle that type of anger when it comes from God. It's only good when it comes from God. The problem with us is we get angry, and we aren't God. And our anger becomes sin almost immediately. Ephesians 4.26 actually tells us, be angry and do not sin. Good luck with that. Do not let the sun go down in your anger because this will destroy you. You're not God. You can't handle this type of stuff. Your anger will immediately turn to sin. I don't know if I've ever been angry without significant sin being with it. I don't think it's actually possible. The Greek word for anger means anger, temper, or wrath. All right, so it's pretty straightforward. <laughs> James 1, 19, 1, 19 through 20 says, Know this, my beloved brothers. Let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger. For the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. Romans twelve nineteen says, Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but save it to the wrath of God. For it is written, Vengeance is mine, and I will repay, says the Lord. And so we're supposed to be angry at sin. God is angry at sin. But the problem with us is that our anger is not one that desires to save. God's anger always desires to save. And God's anger is always revealed in a way which is saving. When God judges people in the Old Testament and removes their presence from the earth, he does that in order to save other people because their evil is too great. God always wants people saved. In Ezekiel, I forget the reference, but it's one of the most powerful verses in the Bible. God delights in the death of no person ever because God's anger is always rooted in his love and always a part of his salvation. Our anger is not. We get angry at people and we don't desire their salvation. We desire their destruction. And our anger is a sin. And we might not act on it. We might not actually kill somebody, but we've got the vengeance in our hearts. And we want to. I am so, I am so mad. I don't want that person to come to forgiveness. I want them to come to pain. I want them to come to the same pain that they caused me. And Jesus says, you thought you were doing a good job. 
But that difference between me and you is great. I'm godly. You're not. I get angry. I desire their salvation. You get angry. You want them to go to hell. You want them to burn. You want them to feel pain. That's disgusting. That's evil. We read this book. We say, what if I say, my, if I say you fool, I'll be like, that Jesus, there he goes again, speaking hyperbolically. I've heard a lot of biblical teachers say that. Next week, we're going to read about how Jesus tells us if something's keeping us out of heaven, if the body part is keeping us out of heaven, we should cut it off. Poke out your eye. Cut off your finger. Oh, he's speaking hyperbolically, that Jesus. He doesn't mean it. It's metaphorical. No, it's not. It's literal. It's literal. Without Jesus Christ... If there was a part of your body that was keeping you out of heaven, you should cut it off immediately. That's how serious sin is. Jesus didn't come to die for something that was insignificant. You know, people who love the idea of a God of grace love to get rid of the commandments. We have a God of grace, so the commandments don't matter. They don't matter. No, Jesus reveals they really matter. Ironically, if you love a God of grace and you want to get rid of the commandments, you get rid of God's grace. Because we're not having grace for anything significant. It's really nothing in, at all. If the rules you've broken are not important, then the God who comes to forgive you of the rule hasn't really done much. Jesus doesn't exaggerate. You're sitting there and you're th- we're making a joke of it, but you're sitting there and thinking, oh, anger, it's not that big of a deal. And Jesus says, no, 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 you're here. And you need to be up here. You need a savior. The whole point is, if you could cut off a part of your body to keep you out of hell, you should do it. But you can't. That won't help either. You need the Lord. He's the only one who can. That's why Jesus, over and over, is telling you, you thought here, but here. That's why I came, to fulfill the law, because I love you more than the rules. The rules aren't insignificant. They're fantastic. They're what love looks like. As important it is to be loving, I love you even more. But you won't love the Lord if you don't understand what he's done for you. You won't be saved unless you understand what you deserve. You won't fully pull your, put your trust in Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior and worship him as your God unless you realize that you need him every second of every day. Jesus doesn't exaggerate. He gives it to us like it is because he loves us. He wants to save us. So he doesn't speak hyperbolically. He gives it to us literally. You're literally worthy of hell. Wouldn't You know, some of you... Come up after anything and you joke around like, oh, when are we going to get to that easy sermon? Because I've made jokes like that too. And I'm telling you, it's just not in here. From cover to cover. We have something more important to do in this life. We grow to think this life is mundane because we think that life is about managing our finances and being a better parent and being a better neighbor and being more kind. Those are small things. This life is something greater 
It's the ultimate battle between good and evil, and we're involved, and we start off on the wrong side. Without the Lord Jesus Christ, we're liable to hell. Yes, you sit there in that chair. And this is what Jesus teaches us. It's not my idea. It's not my words. I like myself. I think highly of myself. I don't know about you, but I definitely think that I was not liable to hell. I wouldn't make up this message. It's not my words. It's Jesus' words. It's Jesus' words to you. It's Jesus' words to me. I've had this type of anger. I would justify it all day long. I would justify it all day and every day. I've had this type of anger towards my friends. I had a friend who was my roommate once. I was getting married, and we had this apartment. And it was this little janky apartment with like multiple bedrooms, but you had to walk through one bedroom to the other to get to the rest of them. And he lost his job. I was, I, I was dating my wife, who was to be my wife at the time, and, and he lost his job and couldn't pay the rent. And I was like, oh, that's fine. Just pay me whenever you can. And week went on and week went on. And I proposed to my wife, and I said, uh, you know, I think uh, if it's all right, I'm going to take the apartment. <laughs> I'm the one who has a job. I'm the one who's paying for it. It seems fair to me. He said, okay, sounds good. And I said, you're going to have to move out before I get married because I'm not bringing my wife in this apartment and walking with her through your bedroom into ours every day. So you're going to have to go. And he said, yeah, no problem. But as time went on, he couldn't find another job. He couldn't find another job. He kept saying, I'll be out, I'll be out, I'll be out. I noticed he hadn't packed a thing. I set the boxes out for him. I set the packing tape out for him. We had some hard conversations. He even goes, if I'm not out, by the time you get married, just throw my stuff out on the lawn. He was so sad. And I was like, I'm going to do that. <laughs> I love you, but it, it will happen, okay? He never got out. It was the weekend before I got married, and I had to call his dad. I said, you're going to have to come get him. I know he's having a tough time in life, but it'd be a lot better for him if you come get him than what I'm going to do to him <laughs> when I come back and I'm married. And he went around and he took gossip to all my friends. Jeremy's kicking me out. I lost friends because of it. I, just, I mean, I'm telling you, I had visions of myself with that packing tape around his neck, pulling it tighter <laughs> and tighter, slowly. And I enjoyed it. I've had that type of anger because I don't love people the way God does. Forget about, we're going to read in a few weeks about how we're supposed to love our enemies. Forget about our enemies. I don't love my friends. I don't love my spouse. I don't know about you guys, but I'm in this marriage to win it. All right, every time we get in an argument, I'm here to win it. I go to embarrassing lengths to do that. And I don't know, don't look at me like, you're such hypocrites, you do it too. <laughs> and I hate, I mean, I, we have these arguments and I hate. I think, you fool. I've said it, and worse. Forget about loving your enemies. I don't even love my wife the way Christ. I can't even be Christ's life to the people who are closest to me. You thought it was here, but it's way up there. And I'm, I'm not even close if you knew the thoughts that went on in here, the guy that cuts me off, the guy that owes me money, sometimes it's like a bad Arnold movie. I'm like, yeah, I don't like any of you. <laughs> 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 
be angry and sin not. I've never done that. I had a, so my friends, my family, it's the people I work with. My, one of my first hires was a youth pastor. We hired him with a team. He was just the most outgoing, positive person. He spoke. He's, he was passionate about the word. He was self-motivated. We hired him. It was revealed he had no motivation and that he didn't trust the word of God. And I was so angry. Look at the position you put me in. What am I going to do now? And I tried to disciple him, and every, every comment was met with resistance. I hated. Look at what you've done to me. And I didn't think about going this, but this is a great time to talk about church staffing. I'm a part of the staff of a church. And I know this church went through a hard time looking forward to having a pastor. I understand. You might be looking forward to having a youth pastor. I understand. Your kids don't listen to you. You want someone who they'll listen to. And you want to hire a youth pastor to love them? I know I'd want one. I want people to love my kids. I thank God for Miss Kim every day. And the people who lead my kids to Christ, if your kids are in the youth group, you want an excellent youth group, you want a youth pastor to love them, this church wanted a pastor to come and love them, to love you and lead you to the Lord. But if you're looking to me to find someone to love you, you're looking in the wrong place. The people to love you were actually already here. It's what a church is. If we could have our elders stand quick. If you're an elder at our church, please stand. These guys were here not because you hired them. The people who love you are already here. And Lathan, Dave, and Jeff, and James, and Ralph love you more than I can. They know you better than I do. They led this church through that time because they loved you. And if you're looking at me to lead you to Christ, you were missing what was happening the whole time. I'm not here to come down on you or anything like that. It's natural. It's normal to look and want leadership, want godly leadership. You guys can sit down. Actually, everybody can sit down except for Ralph. Ralph, stand back up. Uh, Ralph is replacing one of our elders who moved away, and we appointed Ralph to fulfill his term, and we haven't welcomed him yet to being an elder, and so let's welcome Ralph to being an elder. (laughs) And it's the same thing with our youth group right now. We have people who love your kids. Can we have everybody who volunteers for youth stand up? These are the people who love your kids. It's Hannah, it's Marquise, it's Megan and Ryan, it's Carol, it's Riley, and it's Beth, who's leading our youth group. And someday, we're, you guys can sit down. Thank you so much. I was a youth pastor. And what I learned as a youth pastor is that churches bless their youth pastors far more than the youth pastors bless the church. Because as a young person, and a lot of times we, we, our kids don't listen to us, and so we want somebody who's younger that they can relate to and who's entertaining, who will keep their attention. 
And if we hire somebody for those reasons, we've gone the wrong way. We've only affirmed the sin in our youth, which is keeping them from Christ already, which is outrageous pride and selfishness and foolishness that they won't listen to their parents and honor their parents. Your parents deserve kids. Your parents deserve so much honor. If you would listen to a youth pastor over your parents, you're a fool. A youth pastor is usually barely older than you are. They know barely more than you do. And if we're looking for people to guide us to Christ, start with your parents and listen to Beth. Beth is going to know more than any youth pastor can. She knows more now than I did when I was a youth pastor. She probably knows more than I do now. When I was a youth pastor, I was 22, 24, 26 years old, still figuring life out. And you know what I was? I was funny, and I was young, and they can relate to me. And you know who else throughout history has been funny and young? Clowns. Thank God for his mercy for those students under my leadership. And at some point, we'll have to hire for things. I guarantee it. And I don't know when it will come. Usually it comes when the volunteers who love our kids are stretched to the point because the ministry has grown and it will grow. Our church will grow. Our youth group will grow. Our worship team will grow. Our administrative, our women's, will, it'll all grow. And at some point, it'll be too much. And the person leading it will go, I'm going insane. And then they can't even lead godly anymore because they're so crazy with all of the effort, work, and stress that we need to relieve them in some way. And so I'm pro-hiring people. But when we do, it's going to be for the right reasons. And as our budget grows and we have those opportunities, it's going to be for the right things. We need to remember that while we're waiting for that person, we're not waiting for God's movement in our church. This is what God is already doing. He's revealing to us who our church is. Over the past few years, it's been revealed who the church is. And it's us. And it's you. Because what a church is is people who love each other and love the Lord. And the other people who come in attend the church we want to reach out to them. We want to love them with the love of Christ. But until they love us like we love each other, they're actually not part of the church. In the scriptures, that's not what a church is. A church is people who love each other and love the Lord. And if we're going to hire someone who's entertaining to try to get some more people in, we've lost the plot. What we want to do is hire someone who loves the Lord and loves us and has Christian maturity. And so that was a different sermon for a different time, but <laughs> I guess it fits in because I've hated everybody. I've hated my friends. I've hated my spouse. I've hated my coworkers. I've hated people I've hired. I've hated people who've hired me. And Jesus reveals the sin in our heart, and it's not insignificant, it's serious. And Jesus faced much greater pain than we ever did, and he was patient in our place. Do not think I've come to abolish it, though. I haven't gotten rid of it. It's not okay that you hate, you hate other people, even if every one of us does it. It still doesn't make it us okay. He doesn't grade on a curve. Instead, what he's done is he's come to be patient in our place. Praise the Lord. He's the only one who can. He's the only one who can deal with this mess in a godly way. 
Thank you, Jesus, for doing it for me on my behalf, fulfilling the law where I couldn't be loving. Thank you, Lord, for being loving my place and then giving me that forgiveness and salvation. Verse 23, so he says, so if you are offering your gift at the altar and they remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. Come to terms quickly with your accuser while you are going with him to court, lest your accuser hand you over to the judge and the judge to the guard and you be put in prison. Truly, I say to you, you will never get out until you have paid the last penny. We're in bondage to our anger. It's not good for us. It's certainly not good for others. There is a disconnect in our head when we go to sleep at night, when we're angry with other people and we've sinned against them, even if we haven't told them, there's this disconnect in our head. Our brain knows it deep down. And we go to bed and we're unhappy in life and we suffer in life mentally and spiritually. And the Lord says the way to fix it is to go and repent if we've been angry at people, not even telling them. I had somebody, I, uh, I, miss, I, I called them by the wrong name and they came and they told me. They, I, they didn't have to tell me. They came they said, I was mad at you for that. And I'm sorry. I didn't even know. But it's great to do that because it helps you heal. I've been able to do this a few times in my life and it feels great. There's this kid that I grew up with named Aaron. I was horrible to Aaron. I used to cheat in games with that kid all the time. I used to try to trade him cheap stuff and get his better stuff from him. I mean, I was the worst. And for a long time, I, I moved back to where I grew up. And I was, I was going for a walk where I, on these paths that I used to walk in growing up. I hadn't been there in years. And I saw Aaron's parents. I'm like, I'm not going to let this go to waste. I've thought about this in the back of my mind for 25 years. And I went up and said, you're Aaron's parents. I don't know if you remember me, but your son was fantastic. And I was a creep. And I'm sorry. Let that kid know I'm sorry. And it felt great. It feels great. And that sin comes between us and the Lord. And we confess it to the Lord, but what we often don't think of is confessing it to each other. But the Bible commands it, not just here, but elsewhere. Confess your sins to each other. It frees you. And if you don't do that, you won't get out until you've paid the last penny. I don't want to do that. I want to be free. So the Lord tells us how to be free. We go and we apologize to each other, even if they don't even know. And it frees us. And how we get right through the Lord, you could cut off your hand, you could cut out your tongue, but the real problem's in your heart and you can't cut that out. And so you need the Lord Jesus Christ. And thank God you've got him. He's died on the cross for you for your sins. He's taken every bit of punishment that you deserve to make things right. He's done it on your behalf for you because he loves you more than the rules. That's how much Jesus loves you. Every crown of thorns in his head, every whip across his back, every nail in his hand, he took for you. And he de dealt with way more than you ever have. And he handled it way better than you ever could. He was patient in, his, in your place. And to his enemies, he cried, what did he cry? To our enemies, we cry, Father, get them. And Jesus cried, Father, forgive them. And that's what's godly. We haven't done that. We don't deserve a relationship with a perfect being like God.
But thank the Lord for his son, Jesus Christ, so that we can have it. And put your faith in him. Because he's the only one who can.